gospel and find your place in Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. My plan is to finish this book that we've been walking through since the 1st of January. I'm going to finish it two Sundays from now, Lord willing. And then uh, I heard a little woos. I don't know how to take that. I don't know if that's, man, this has been great, and we just can't wait to hear all the rest of her. It's been, man, this has been laborious, and we're ready to move on to something else. But uh, So two Sundays from now, Lord willing, we'll finish the book of Nehemiah. So uh, next Sunday, uh, I believe we're going to look at there in the 12th chapter, and we're going to see how they dedicated the, the, the wall to the Lord. We're going to see how they celebrated what God was doing, and it was continued to do in them. And then we're going to finish up in chapter 13, and really looking at guarding our spiritual lives. Because what we're going to see this morning in chapter 10, how they covenant with the Lord and commit themselves to the things of God, the Word of God, the people of God, we're going to see them fall away from that. In chapter 13, and Nehemiah's going to have to rebuke them and bring them to a place of brokenness and repentance. And so there we're going to look at this idea of we need to always be vigilant and on guard in our spiritual life because we do have an enemy that is always seeking to devour us and to destroy our testimony. And so that is the plan over the next few Sundays, and then I will be gone to Barcelona for about 10 days in uh, this month, latter part of this month. We'll come up come back and the last Sunday we'll have the Lord's Supper and then in August I'm going to start a new four-week series that we're entitling Welcome and it's going to be all about biblical hospitality. What does it mean to be a hospitable believer? What does it mean to be a hospitable church? And so we're just going to look at what the Bible says about hospitality and opening ourselves, our lives, the doors of our church to the alien, the stranger, the foreigner, and the lost. And so we're going to talk about that and, and give some practical implications of what that means for our church and for our lives personally. But this morning, here in Nehemiah chapter 10, I want to speak to this subject, commit. Last week, we looked there in chapter 9 of how the people of God, after hearing the word of God, began to remember, remember what God has done for them, remember what God has spoken, and so they're remembering God's word. That leads to a commitment in their life, a recommitment as the people of God to live by the word of God. And so, This is a word for each and every one of us today. We need to be people who are committed to the Lord. And commitment, when you think about it, it's one of the most beautiful things in this world. I love to see commitment in the lives of people. I love to see people who are committed to things that matter. I love to see commitment even in my own life. And so what is commitment? Well, it's defined as this. Commitment is the state or quality of being dedicated, uh, the state of quality being dedicated to a cause, an activity, or something like that despite the circumstances. And so a person who's committed is dedicated to the cause, it's dedicated to an activity, dedicated to an individual despite whatever circumstances may come against them in life. And so commitment is beautiful, commitment is precious because commitment is rare. It's rare to see a person that's committed. It's rare to see a, an organization that's completely committed all the time. It's a rare thing in this world. We look in the Word of God and we see that commitment is, in many ways, a rare commodity. But thankfully, our great nation was built on commitment. July 1st, 1776, 242 years ago, this day, the Second Continental Congress met in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They met for the purpose to discuss and debate the separation from England and the King of England. The following day, July 2nd, 
12 of the 13 colonies voted in favor of Richard Henry Lee's, a Virginian's, motion for independence. The delegates then spent the next two days debating and revising the language of a statement drafted by, again, a Virginian, Thomas Jefferson. And then on July 4th, Congress officially adopted the Declaration of Independence, and as a result, July 4th, for the last 242 years, has been declared declaration or d- declared Independence Day. When you think about that, and last weekend, my family and I were at Thomas Jefferson's estate over in Charlottesville. And it's a wonderful, beautiful, if you've never been there, I want to encourage you to go and to see it. And, and just to be able to kind of walk back in time to see all the things that, that transpired and led to where we are today as a nation. It was, it was wonderful to see that. When you think about Thomas Jefferson and all these men who signed this declaration, what was going on there? What was at stake there? You see, in signing the Declaration of Independence, our founding fathers committed themselves to two things. They committed themselves to securing the colony's independence from the King of England. That's a wonderful endeavor. That is a a monumental task. But they also had a second thing that they committed themselves to, and that was the surety of death if they failed. They committed themselves to those two things. We are going to declare independence from the king of England, and we're going to win our independence from the king of England. But if we don't do that, we're committed to the very end because it will be our heads that are on the line. Commitment was in our history. You see, these men, without reservation, signed their lives away. That begs the question, why would they do that? Why would they go to such great lengths to put their lives even on the line for the sake of a fledging nation? They signed the document because they believed in freedom. And they were dedicated to that end despite any circumstances that would come against them. And so today, 242 years later, we are enjoying the freedoms that their commitment gave us and secured for us at great cost to their own lives. As we come to the Word of God, we find a similar picture of commitment here in the life of Nehemiah. In the lives of these Jews who were with Nehemiah. See, they weren't committing themselves to throwing off the tyranny of Persia, but they were committing themselves afresh and anew to God because they understood that it was their forsaking of Him which had led to their exile from the promised land. Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites and all of the people had read from God's Word. In chapter 8, we saw that. It exposed their sin. It reminded them of God's grace. And in chapter 9, it leads them to repentance and faith. Forsaking of God's word had caused Israel to forget God. They had walked away from God. But the reading of God's word caused them now to remember God. And their remembrance led to them recommitting themselves afresh and anew to the Lord. So I want us to take your Bible. I want you to take your Bible. And I want us to begin in chapter 9, verse 38. And we're going to read on into chapter 10. Chapter 9, verse 38. We read this verse last week. I didn't unpack it because it really, um, really speaks to chapter 10 more than it speaks to chapter, chapter 9. So verse 38, chapter, chapter 9. Verse 38 says, Because of all of this, we make a firm commitment in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Chapter 10 opens with 27 different verses of all of these men who signed this document. It was kind of reminiscent of the Declaration of Independence where uh, all these delegates, all these men who represented the colonies within the Second Continental Congress came and signed their names 
on this document. Verse 28 picks up. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as, is, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, the priests, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor." The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers. And then notice the last statement they make in this covenant. We will not neglect the house of of our God. There's a lot that is said here in this chapter. There's a lot that is declared here. There's a lot that's promised here in this chapter. See, at the conclusion of the prayer of remembrance that we find there in chapter 9, the people made a renewed surrender to the God of the covenant. This reminds us that those who belong to the Lord must behave as He demands. As you read chapter 10, you saw there that they kept referring back to what the law said. They said, we're going to do this because the law has told us to do it. We're recommitting ourselves to what God has already demanded of us. The time had come for them to affirm their loyalty in the presence of their families, their friends, and their neighbors. Their commitment to God took the form of a series of written promises laid out there in chapter 9, verse 38. And so what, are the returnees, what, what the returnees do here in Nehemiah 10 serves as a wonderful example for us in the church today. I don't know about you, but as you're reading this this morning, perhaps you're sitting here thinking, uh, how does this apply to me? I'm in the 21st century. I, I don't even have a farm to bring a tithe to the, to, the, to the house of God, to the priests and the Levites. We don't have that sort of the system. How in the world does this apply to my life today? That's a question that when we're reading Scripture, we have to wrestle with. And so how does this apply to us today? I believe it serves as a beautiful example for us in the church. You see, covenants are important 
because they have figured prominently in biblical history. As we read this covenant here, it's reminiscent of other covenants that we see in the Old Testament. God made covenants with Noah. God made covenants with Abraham and Moses and and David. There he pledged his faithfulness to the promises that he made to them. If you're reading with us through the Bible right now, we've been reading through the life of David and Solomon, and now we're into some of the other kings, and, and we see God's promise, even as the kings of Judah continue to walk in disobedience and walking in the sins of Israel, the northern, northern kingdom, David's pro, or the covenant God made with David keeps, keeps coming back, even as God is judging his own people. He says, I'm not going to wipe them out because of David and the promises and a covenant I've made with him. God makes covenants with his people. Specific times throughout Israel's history, we also see not just God making covenant with his people, we see God's people making covenants back with the Lord. Men like Joshua, King Hezekiah, King Josiah, all three of these men and others, when they began to see the wickedness of the people of God, they began to lead a movement, leading the people back to God and making promises to the Lord, covenanting with Him to follow Him, to live according to His Word. They realized the sorrow that they were experiencing was simply because they had forsaken God, and so they led them and the people to recommit themselves to the written covenants of God. And they not only led them, they jotted it down on paper saying, this is a binding agreement between the God of heaven and we, his people. Covenants are important because they also have been prominent throughout Christian history. For example, a, a number of 16th century congregations prepared written accounts of their corporate commitment to the Lord and to one another. They put things down on paper so that it would be binding to the Lord and to themselves. Some of the English Puritans recorded their personal promises of love and loyalty to the Lord. Some of you, you journal as you pray. And so you're writing your prayers down to the Lord in one way, in one sense. That is a covenant between you and the Lord. As you, Maybe you're reminded of sin in your life. And as you're writing that down in your prayer journal and saying, Lord God, I, I acknowledge this as a sin. I confess this as a sin. And I ask that you would help me to walk in obedience to this. You're covenanting with the Lord. It's what the Puritans did. Later, men like Jonathan Edwards and David Brainerd and John Wesley followed their same example of the Puritans. Some 17th and even 18th century nonconformist commitments took the form of a corporate covenant as local church members pledged themselves to honor God in very specific ways and, and then would append their name, they would write their name onto the document of those promises. So we see biblical history of this. We see uh, church history of this. We see all of these things leading us to see that covenants are important in the life of the believer. They show us, these examples show us the importance of affirming our commitment to God by putting some words on paper. You see, the value of a covenant is that it saves our admiral desires from hovering in a pious word. This is what happens sometimes in our Christian life. Lord begins to deal with us. We begin to acknowledge that we got some sin, some things that are not right. We've walked away from His Word. We, we've neglected our relationship with Him. He begins to draw us back to Him. And we say, yes, Lord, we want to do this. Yes, Lord, we're going to do this. And it goes from uh, really heartfelt words that you're saying, but because there's something that's not necessarily binding on you, you have a tendency to kind of scoot out from underneath that. And so what a covenant does is it brings others into play here, as we're going to see in just a moment. It brings others into play to hold you to the decisions that you've made. We need to be a covenant people. 
So we make firm decisions in God's presence to do His will over particular contemporary issues in our life. And even as a local church here at Red Lane, we have a covenant. Sometimes when we've got uh, an individual or a family who's seeking membership in our church, and our church membership is quite a bit different than it definitely was, and it's quite a bit different than other churches in our area. It's not just easy. You just don't come forward in a, in a response time, and we say, uh, here's so-and-so, they're coming from so-and-so church, and all of a sudden they're affirmed into the local body here at Red Lane. That's not the way we do it. We take steps to, to make sure we're talking about doctrine, talking about expectations, talking about a person's walk with the Lord, and all of those things. We want to know that God's calling them, and they feel that, and all of that. They, we, and then the last part is signing, affirming our church covenant that says basically this. This is how we're going to live. This is how we're going to serve. This is how we're going to give. These are the things that we're going to believe. We're, we're covenanting with God. We're covenanting with one another. This is a family. This is a relationship. This is a marriage. This is something I'm committed to being a part of. And so we have a church covenant here at Red Lane. So in order to be a member, you have to put your name on the covenant and by so doing, what you're doing is you're committing yourself to the same things that the Jews here in Nehemiah 10 committed themselves to do. And so I want us to look at four things they committed to do in this covenant they made with the Lord. And these four things need to be things that we're committed to in our own personal life, four things we need to be committed to as a church. And I think I can do this in 14 minutes, which is a miracle in and of itself. First thing I believe we need to be committed to is we need to commit to God and His Word. Verse 28 and 29, Nehemiah tells us that the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Those people who had separated themselves from the pagan that worship they were accustomed to separated themselves to the law of God. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, verse 29, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, their servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statues. What are they doing here in these two verses? They're promising to obey God's word. They're committing to him and they're committing to what he has commanded them to do. The Bible tells us here the nobles, the priests, the Levites, and the pagans who had turned from idols and embraced Yahweh, all of them committed to God and to his word. So it wasn't just Jews here that were making this commitment. There were some people, aliens, foreigners, who now were living and residing in Israel, residing in Jerusalem, who had left their pagan religions and were now trusting in the one true God, the God of Israel, the Lord God himself, and they had left all that behind, and they themselves joined with the Jews committed afresh and anew to God and to his word they had forsaken God to chase idols and they're acknowledging this before the Lord so by recommitting themselves to God and to his word what they're doing is they're saying this Lord Jesus we're separating ourselves from the things of this world and we're separating ourselves unto you committing themselves to God and to his word and today as a Christ follower we are a people of the book think about it we have no other resource in which to live life. We have no other resource that we go to for the words of life, for the things that we need to, to, to strengthen us and equip us and empower us to live in this life to honor God. We have no other resource. There's nothing outside of what God has spoken and is what is recorded here in this book for us 
to go to. We are a one well people. Does that make sense? If you're a country folk, you may understand that. We have one well by which to draw from, and that is the Word of God, the Bible and the Bible alone. This reminds me of Peter's confession to Jesus there in John chapter 6. You remember the story there in John chapter 6? Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching some very harsh things. He's saying things like this. If you don't eat my blood and drink, or eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my follower. And so they were hearing these very difficult teachings, and the Bible tells us that many of them turned back and no longer walked with the Lord. And so Jesus looked at his disciples and he asked them a question. In John chapter 6, verse 67, it says this. Jesus asked, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him. And he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have already believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter and the disciples here, as Jesus asked them this question, they looked square, Jesus square in the face, and they says, Jesus, where else would we go? We have no other resource. Jesus, there's not another Messiah, there's not another Savior, there's not another God to follow, there's nothing else but you. We have nowhere else to go, and so we are resting in you, we're chasing after you. He alone had the words of eternal life. And today, 2,000 years or so after this question to them, and after this statement by Peter, nothing has changed. Jesus still has the words of eternal life. So what God has said in his word is still true and it's still applicable to your life today just as it was on the day it was spoken. The word of God is the only thing by which we have to live. And so we commit ourselves to God and his word. We turn from and throw off any sin and any entanglement that would hold us back from complete abandonment and commitment to Christ. This and this alone is the proper response when we hear from God's word. We must commit to God and his word. There's a second thing we need to commit to in our lives. We need to commit to mutual accountability. I mentioned this just a few minutes ago. Mutual accountability is a beautiful thing in the life of God's people. Again, verse 28 and 29. All these people here, it says they have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. Verse 29, they join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into this curse and oath to walk in God's law that he had given through Moses, his servant. They're joining together. You see that there in the text. All of these people, different people from different walks of life, Jews and Gentiles, upper class, lower class, no class, it didn't matter. They're all joining themselves together as the people of God in mutual accountability. They're joined together here in this public commitment to God. So what are they committing? They're committing to hold others to this covenant. They're committing to allow others to hold them to this commitment. See, as they're joining together, they're saying this, you're my brother, I'm going to hold you to the commitment that we're making. And what they're also saying is, as my brother, I'm encouraging you to hold me accountable to this commitment that we're making to the Lord. There's mutual accountability amongst the people of God. You see, the the default position of the flesh is to be on your own. Isolation is the default position of our flesh. If you never realized it, This is what happens when you get involved in sin. It always separates you from God. It always separates you from those who would lead you back to God. 
It always isolates you. The reason that people in, in, in sinful lifestyles become so miserable is because they have no one to turn to in their life. It isolates you from those who would love you, those who would care for you. And that's what happens in the life of a believer who's walking in sin. And so what these people are doing is this. They're saying, we're going to join our lives together in mutual accountability as we pursue and chase after God. The Christian life. I want you to hear this statement. The Christian life, though personal, and your, your, your faith is personal, right? If you're in a relationship with Jesus, it is a personal faith. In other words, you can't ride the coattails of grandma. You can't ride the coattails of your husband or your wife. As, as a kid, you can't ride the coattails of your parents. It's not their faith. It's got to be your faith. It is a personal faith. All of us come on the uh, call of God personally to us. It's not something we derive from someone else. And so it is a personal faith, but the Christian life, though personal, is not individualistic, as if it only concerns the solitary believer. What we find in Israel and what we find in the church are the same things. That our life in God, our life in Christ, is something, yes, that we have personally with Him, but it's also something we share corporately with one another. It is a corporate faith. It is a corporate relationship. It affects everyone around us. So the sins that each person had committed were not isolated to the individual. As you read the Old Testament, God doesn't necessarily speak to the individual who's committing sins. Now there's some people's names who were mentioned, like Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who leads the northern kingdom astray, and you see this terrible history take place. He ignites this, but it didn't, his sin didn't just dwell with him. It was passed on to people who followed him, passed on to his descendants. It affected everyone in his realm of influence. And so it's not an isolated thing. It is a corporate thing. You see, the sins of each person had collectively affected everyone in Israel. Therefore, this, in signing this covenant, they were making to God... They were testifying openly to their neighbors that they had presented themselves afresh and anew to God. And commitment of this kind is an important part of an, infect, of an effective Christian testimony. If we want to have a, a testimony that is honoring to God, if we want to have a testimony that, that, that is pleasing to God, we have to have a testimony that is in relationship with other people. We have to have a testimony that says, I want you to be able to speak into my life as I speak into your life. We want our our, our witness to be public. We want our life and our commitments to be public. Baptism is such a testimony. I mean, think about baptism in the early church. What was the purpose of baptism? Did it save you? No, it didn't save you at all. But it was a way for a person to publicly identify, to say, I am in Christ, I am with Christ, and I'm with all of those crazy people who are also following Christ. I'm making this commitment public to everyone. And so it provided the early Christians with a form of witness which publicly declared to their neighbors their resolute loyalty to Jesus. And this is one of the reasons that for us today, even 2,000 years after the first baptism when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and all the believers after him followed in suit, so many centuries have passed, and yet today, one of the reasons that people need to be baptized very soon after coming to Christ is because it helps them to have this mutual accountability. You're not a closet Christian. There's no such thing as a closet Christian. There's only open Christians. There's only people who are public with their faith. It's mutual accountability. You see, you need others to know that you're a follower of Jesus because you need others praying for you. 
You need others who are speaking into your life. You need others who are encouraging you. You need others who are teaching you. You yourself need to be those things for other believers as well. You even need somebody who loves Jesus like you love Jesus to look you square in the face at times and rebuke you because you've walked in sin. We need that mutual accountability in our lives. And so the people of God here, we're entering into this covenant for mutual accountability. And today we enter into a covenant with one another as a church body and our church membership. And what we're doing in doing so is we're saying this, we're committed to mutual accountability. We're committed to the people of God here at Red Lane Baptist speaking into my life and I'm committed to be able to speak into their life because I don't know about you, but I need it. I need it in my life and actually I do know you need it as well. There's a third thing that we need to be committed to in our lives And that is we must commit to walk in purity. Walk in purity. Verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every Now, I don't have time to go into all the details of the Sabbath and all the details of of, uh, marriage and all of that stuff. So let me just kind of sum up this as best as I can this morning. God's law, we know, commanded the Jews to be holy as God is holy. That command comes from Leviticus 20. Peter reiterates that command in one of his epistles. But we, as we know this command, we see this laid out before the people of God, from God. We know that Israel's history in the Old Testament was anything but holy. There was anything but holiness in the people of God throughout their history. Instead, what we see is them forgetting God's word. And in forgetting God's word, the Jews were lured little by little into greater and greater immorality. And so when they began to flirt with immorality, the reciprocation of that was that Jews little by little forgot God. They forgot his word. So the more that they forgot God's word, the more it increased sinfulness in their lives. And the more they, that sinfulness was created in their lives, the more they forgot God. And that's what happens in our life as well. And so it led to greater and greater impurity amongst the people of God. In the covenant that they're making here with the Lord, the Jews in Jerusalem committed themselves to walk in purity. And they did so by promising to, to not give their daughters to the foreigners to the pagans or to take their daughters for their sons they also committed to keep the sabbath holy and we think about this intermarriage thing the first thing especially in our hot button culture is to think of it as race we think of it in the context of ethnicity we should not read this not interpret this not understand this as a racial or ethnic issue this is about a holiness issue this is about a a worship issue it had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with ethnicity. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Well, if we go back up to chapter 28, if we are to understand this as a race issue, then Nehemiah would not have included in their prayer that all of those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands were also committing themselves in this covenant. Because what Nehemiah is cluing us, into there, cluing us in there is, is this, that there were people who left pagan worship to now worship as a Jew. And so it wasn't about race, it wasn't about ethnicity, it's about holiness and separation to be pure before God. They understood that one of the main reasons that their kings, priests, and fathers walked away from the word of God was because they had married pagan women. 
We know Solomon's history. We know Solomon's story. The Bible tells us in uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, that Solomon's heart was led astray because he had many pagan wives. See, the most intimate relationship that we have in life is the relationship of a husband and a wife. And when you attach yourself, you know, the Bible talks about how when a husband and wife come together, they become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. There's something that's unifying in the marriage relationship unlike any other relationship that we have as human beings. And so when we connect ourselves, as we yoke ourselves, as Paul would say, to an unbeliever, their belief system, their worldviews are being yoked to our Christian biblical worldview. And what we have is often not bringing that unbeliever into faith. What we usually have is the unbeliever, the the uh, pagan worshiper bringing and dragging the God-fear into pagan type of worship. We see this syncretizing, this syncretism taking place in the believer's lives. Syncretism is what we saw all throughout the book of Judges as we walked through that last year. Syncretism led to this convoluted, this interweaving of worship. It also resulted in the neglection of the Sabbath. He mentions the Sabbath there, that they're going to keep it holy. I mean, the Sabbath was something God created for His people. He said, on six days I work, on the seventh day you're going to rest, just as I rested. Now, did God have to rest on that seventh day in creation? No, He, he never slumbers, He never sleeps, He never tires. He didn't need to rest. He did as an example for us to find our rest in Him, to trust Him. It's about faith and belief. And so these Jews, as they saw the pagans working and making money seven days a week, and they're only making money six days a week, they thought, well, what's better than six days of work to make money? Seven days is better than six days, right? It just makes good logical financial sense. And so they began to do work seven days a week. They also, uh, because they didn't believe God, thought that they needed to work the seventh day or to plow their fields on the seventh year. So all of this boils down to them not trusting the Lord and believing God by faith that he would be good to his promise. So the Lord said, you gather what you need on the sixth day and it'll be enough for the seventh day. If you remember the story of there where manna first came and the people of God have just now embarked on their wilderness wanderings and the manna from heaven came down to feed the people of God and God says, you shall gather what you need every morning for that day. Right? It was only good for one day. If it was kept overnight, it was spoiled, had worms in it. And so Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they would gather for one day. Friday, they would actually gather for two days, and it would be good for Saturday as well. So he would always provide for them. This carried over even after they got into the promised land. The command from the Word of God was that you shall ply your fields for six years, and then on the seventh year, you shall allow it, you should let it just be fallow. You shouldn't plow it. You shouldn't till it. You shouldn't do anything for it. Just let it grow up. Be, let it be weedy. Let it be thistly. Whatever it needs to be. In fact, whatever grows there will be for those who are poor. And so what they did is they plowed their fields for six years. They gathered on the sixth year enough for that year, for the year to come, and also to seed on the eighth year. They always trusted God. It was about faith. It was about a belief that God would be good for his promise. And so here as they commit themselves to not give their children to foreigners, to not intermarry with pagans, and as they committed themselves to the Sabbath and to keep it holy, what they're doing is this. They're saying, I will commit my life to walk in purity. I'm not going to allow anything to lead me astray. There's a fourth and final thing that we need to commit to. And that is, commit to participate in worship. 
Man, I said we'd be done in 14 minutes, and you knew that was a lie. There's so much here in this chapter that we really need to flesh out. But in these final verses, which we're not going to read again, verses 32 through 39, we see this commitment to participate in worship. They make these promises to tithe. They make these promises to give certain offerings that were uh, laid out and spelled out in the law of God. They're recommitting themselves to the worship of the temple, to take care of the priests, to take care of the Levites, to provide benevolence and all of the things that went into this. It was all about providing for the temple. What's the big deal about the temple? The temple symbolized the presence of God amongst the people of God. It was a big deal for the temple. It was part of their worship. It was part of how they came to God. The sacrifices were made there at the temple of God. The offerings were given there at the temple of God. It was the presence of God they celebrated, which gave them the pleasures, the good pleasures of God that were spilled out onto their lives. Today, we no longer live in the era of this old covenant. Our sins are not covered by the slaughtering of bulls and lambs at the temple. In fact, the temple doesn't even stand in Jerusalem today. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. But today we live in the era of the new covenant, the covenant in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that he was the one who was a better and final sacrifice for our sin, to atone for all sin. And therefore today we don't go to the temple to offer sacrifices. We bring the temple with us. We today, if you're in relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible tells you that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God himself has put a deposit into your life, Ephesians 1 tells us. And so the Holy Spirit lives within you, and we bring the temple with us as we collectively gather together as a church. The reason I strongly work to change the language of calling this room a sanctuary is because it can't be a sanctuary biblically. Your heart Our hearts collectively are the sanctuary of God. This is simply brick and mortar. And so as we think about a renovation, just a sidebar here for a second, if we we are changing some things, it's not like we're changing the temple in Jerusalem, right? Totally different thing. We're not doing anything to this room other than trying to make it a little bit more appealing as we move into the future. It doesn't change the sanctuary because you as a child of God are the sanctuary. So we bring the temple with us. It's the collective church consisting of each and every believer. And so there is no building in Jerusalem that believers are obligated to financially support today. We don't send our money to Jerusalem. See, the New Testament teaches us that our financial support today goes toward the work of the gospel ministry through the local church. Question that comes to my mind as I'm reading through this text here. Why does the Jews' commitment to participate in worship center on financial giving as you read these verses toward the end of the chapter. Why in their commitment to the Lord, this covenant, are they saying we're going to give this and this and this and this? Why didn't their commitment center on attendance? Why doesn't their commitment center around service? Lord, we're going to serve. I'll be the parking lot greeter for the next 20 years. Lord, I'm going to serve you in that way. Lord, I'm going to attend, never going to miss a Sunday for the rest of my life. This is my worship to you. Am uh, Am I saying those things aren't important? Absolutely not. But the reason I believe that financial giving here is so clearly uh, committed back to the Lord is because it and it alone speaks best to what the people of God valued. You see, when we think think about worship, we should think of it in the context of worth-ship. Worth-ship. What do we value? What is worth? what, What is the value of something? What is worthy to us? Jesus taught us in Matthew 26, or 621, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
So in other words, what Jesus is teaching is the best way to ascribe worth to someone or to something is to spend your treasure on it. You see, we all have a certain amount of money. It's different for every person, but we spend it on the things that we value, right? I value, as an SEC college football fan, I value the SEC network. So I will spend whatever it is, $15 a month, so I can have the SEC channel in my house. Some of you look at me like, that's the stupidest thing that you, why would you just waste $15 on an SEC network? It's valuable to me. I love to watch it. I can't wait. We're like, what, 80, 75, 80 days from football, maybe less than that? I mean, I'm getting giddy right now just thinking about it. Uh, It's valuable to me. You spend your money on what's valuable to you. And so listen to this this morning. If you value Jesus, what we're seeing here in this text is you will give to support his work. Now understand, when you give to this church, number one, you're not giving to a church, you give through a church. You're definitely not giving to a pastor or a staff. You're giving to Jesus Christ as the shepherd of this church to do the work of the ministry fleshed out through the body of Christ. So that's what we're doing. We give to the Lord because the Lord is valuable to us. So it's also, as we think about this, it's not a quantity issue. If you remember Jesus, as he was sitting there in front of the temple, as people were coming in and giving their offerings to the Lord, he made mention of an old widow woman who, as she came into the temple, gave two simple copper coins, and Jesus made a very big deal out of this woman. In fact, she's still preached about today because of her gift. Was it the quantity of what she gave? No, it was the quality of what she gave. She sacrificed. Jesus says that she gave out of her poverty, and she gave very little, but she gave out of her poverty. Those richer people were giving very much, but they were giving out of their excess. And so it's not about quantity, it's about quality. The contributions here to the temple made possible the entire sacrificial system. It included the priests, the Levites, the offerings, and even the benevolent work of the ministry. So when the Jews here were giving systematically, when they gave consistently, when they gave joyfully, what it was doing is it was revealing hearts that loved and hearts that worshipped the Lord. And today when we do this, it reveals the same thing. But when they didn't do this, it revealed their hearts were wicked and far from God. Malachi chapter 1, man, I don't have time to go into that. Malachi chapter 1, this great prophet stands there and he rebukes the people and he says, you're bringing this junk to the, to the Lord, why don't you go and try to give that to the governor and see if he accepts it. And yet the people of God, even the, Le- the Levites and the priests were accepting this trash. It's no different for us today. Our hearts follow what we treasure. And so in many ways, your love and worship of Christ will result in giving systematically, consistently, and joyfully to his work through the church. This is the summer months. And what happens in the summer months, and this is not my notes, by the way. This is free. This is free of charge. But what happens in the summer months, obviously attendance goes down because people are traveling, they're vacation. There's nothing wrong with that. Everybody needs a break. I would welcome a break right now, to be honest. But what happens when many people travel, when many people are away, is their giving goes away as well. For the life of me, I've never understood that. I've just been a person who says, you know what, the Lord's called me to, he's commanding me to give X amount. I'm a guy, you've heard me say, I believe the Bible clearly teaches that giving begins with the tenth. And so we give there, we start there, and we go above and beyond that as the Lord leads and directs us for different things. But our giving is always consistent, and it should always be consistent, whether you're here or not. In fact, we've created ways in our modern technology that you can give and not even be here. You can be sitting on a beach on a Sunday morning in in, in the Outer Banks or in Myrtle Beach or wherever you like to, to vacate 
to, you can sit there and say, you know what, I forgot to send my tithe in this week. I forgot to give my offering this week. Pull out your smartphone, pull up something on a website or text it to it, and you can send money electronically. You can always be consistent and sacrificial and joyful in your giving. Like I said, that was free this morning. Just a side note. The people of God here committed. 242 years ago, when John Hancock, John Adams, Samuel Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and many other of the colonial leaders, when they stood there and they began to sign the Declaration of Independence, they committed themselves to two things. They committed to secure the colonies in independence from the king. They also committed themselves to the surety of death if they failed. The time for talking about independence was over. It was time to put names on a piece of paper. It was time to either put up or shut up. It was time to commit to the cause. And for some of you today, this morning, it's time to commit. You've sensed the Lord stirring in your heart. You know perhaps you're lost. You know that you're in need of salvation. And so this morning, it's time to commit. I remember those days as an 18-year-old. God is really bringing me and drawing me and wooing me and convicting me of my sin. And there came a moment in my life, it was on a Thursday morning at work, and it was time to commit. Perhaps as a Christian, you know that your walk with Christ is not what it should be. As I often say, you're walking at a guilty distance. You are living in some sort of sin. You need to return to Jesus. You're a prodigal son. So it's time to recommit. For others this morning, the Lord has led you here to Red Lane. You've been visiting for maybe a few Sundays, maybe a few months. You sense that God wants you to pursue membership here in this church, to serve, to, to plant your life, to plant your family. And so it's time to commit yourself to serving God through this local church. The Lord is leading you to commit to Him this morning. I want to encourage you to do just that. I'm going to ask you to respond publicly. Why would you do that? As I read my Bible, I don't see closet responses very often. But what I see overwhelmingly throughout Scripture is this open, public, in-your-face, bold declaration of I'm following Jesus, I'm committed to this, and I'm not going to back away from it. So I'm going to invite you as we move into a response time to make your commitment public before the Lord. Why do you need to make it public? Here's our statement I want us to close with. The devil is not worried about our pious aspirations. He's troubled when in obedience to God for the glory of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we make firm, practical decisions to do specific things for the Lord. That's why these men and women covenanted together to follow and recommit themselves to God. This morning, if God is leading you to do something, make that decision public, binding upon yourself so that you can have others praying, encouraging, strengthening, speaking into your life because you need it as a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning.